You're tuned in to a special encore presentation of The Bridge. This episode, recorded November 2021, discusses the future of libraries. Enjoy. And hello there. Your man's here once again. Now, do you remember the first time you ever went in a library? I think I do. Now, it may not have been the actual very first time I went in a library, because that was probably in my very early years, and I actually don't remember. When I went to school in Kuala Lumpur in Malaya, when I was like three or four years old, my mother was my teacher. I'm sure there was a library in that school of some kind, so I probably went in that one. But the first time I actually remember going in a library, I was a little older than that. And it was in Ottawa when after we'd moved to Ottawa. And I'm not talking about school libraries anymore. I'm talking about the public library. And the public library, when I was going to school in Ottawa, in our area, was on Bank Street, just across the canal from Lansdowne Park, where the Ottawa Rough Riders played in those days, back in the 1950s, late 50s. And you'd walk to the library, and I I was kind of prodded and pushed by my parents, you know, if you want to learn more, you got to understand more, you got to go to the library. And so I used to go, and you'd, you know, you'd take out books, and you'd fill out the little cards, and you'd, you know, promise to have it back within X number of days, or there'd be a penalty, and away you'd go. So I would do that every once in a while, but I can remember, you know, the hushed silence in the library in the librarian who was, you know, very strict about keeping that hushed silence. A library was a place to respect and to read if you wished, but you needed to do it with quiet. So he or she, whoever the librarian was, would ensure that in fact, that respect was kept. So it was a special place. But that was, you know, 60 years ago. Life has changed. The way we gather information has changed. The way we read has changed. But libraries still exist. There may be moments of struggle, but they're still out there. And I wanted to do this, not that I'm, you know, in any way particular about libraries. I don't. I can't remember the last time I went to a library. I think it was the University of Toronto in the Robarts building. Had a tour of that because some of my papers are there in the archives at the University of Toronto. And so I had a wonderful tour of their various sections in that university library, including a rare book section. 
Anyway, my interest was piqued in my recent visit to Scotland by a new book that came out just this week in North America. It's been out for a few weeks in the United Kingdom. But just this week in North America, it's getting, you know, significant reviews in the United States. It's called The Library of Fragile History. And it's written by two professors at St. Andrews University in Scotland. Now, so <laughs> I had a couple of I had a couple of letters last week at the Mansbridge podcast at gmail.com uh, from people who heard me say, oh, I'm doing a show from St. Andrews, and they assumed it was all about golf, right? Oh, you got to go to this hole or that hole. You got to go to this, you know, the ladies' putting club. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to tell these stories. And I said, no, no, no. I, you know, as much as I'm partial to golf, this is not a book about a story about golf. This is a story about libraries. So, the Library of Fragile History is written by Andrew Pedigree and Arthur Duvedevan, both of whom teach at St. Andrews. And St. Andrews University is famous for a lot of different reasons. It's one of Scotland's top universities. It's where Will and Kate, I think, met when they were both going to university there. And, of course, they're you know, brilliant studies on any number of different subjects that come out of St. Andrews. But this one piqued my interest. I thought, okay, I want to know more. And so I, uh, I reached out to these two fellows, Professors Pedigree and Dervedevin, and they were both, hey, no problem. We'd love to do, to talk. <laughs> you know, authors, they can't get enough publicity for their books. Off the record, still on the bestseller list. So I reached out, they agreed, and when we come back, my interview with the two St. Andrews professors about why we should care about libraries and what is the current state of libraries on a kind of worldwide basis. So we'll begin that right after this. All right, back with the authors of the new book, Receiving Attention in Different Parts of the World, and just released in North America this week, The Library of Fragile History by Andrew Pedigree and Arthur Dervedevin from St. Andrews University in Scotland. So enough with the preamble. Let's hear the interview. You know, I want to start by talking a little bit about this wonderful library in Inner Pefre, which is, I don't know, to, to describe it to Canadians, I, I guess it's it's not far from Perth, not far from Stirling, if you're looking at a map of Scotland. Uh, but it, it, it has a lot of history to it. And Arthur, I, I want you, as, as somebody who's walked in that library, uh, to try and give us a sense of what you found when you were in there and what we'd find if we were there. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. Um, it's, it's, it's truly one of our uh, fav favorite libraries, um, certainly, uh, certainly in the UK, possibly even in the world. Um, like you describe it, it's, it's in quite a rural setting uh, in rural Perthshire. And um, it's this wonderful, um, wonderful two-story building uh, next to an old chapel. And this was a, a building that, was, um, uh, that used to belong to uh, Lord David Drummond, who in, in 1680, uh, at the end of the 17th century, decided to uh, bequeath his, his library, his collection of books that he had built up over his lifetime to uh, the people of the area, uh, to the people of the, the village of Inner and the nearby uh, town of, of Creef. And um, uh, he, he brought together a library of about 3,000 books uh, that, he, uh, that he equipped this, this building for. And he ensured that uh, the top floor is where all the books are kept, these wonderful uh, wall-lined bookcases, uh, floor to ceiling, uh, with a couple of, of sort of bay, bays in the middle. And downstairs uh, was a, an apartment for the librarian, for the person uh, who would be taking, taking care of these books. And if you can still go there today, and there's an uh, absolutely a wonderful, a wonderful librarian, uh, everyone, anyone is welcome to come, and they get this, this, this tour of, of this excellent collection. And, um, you know, you're allowed to uh, grab some books from the shelf, whatever you, whatever you fancy, and whether that's a, uh, you know, a 16th century English Bible or a, a multi-volume 17th century atlas that's been, been hand-colored. And, you know, you, you, you're going through these pages, and it's, it's history right, right in front of you. And it's, it's just one of the most magical experiences you can have as, as a scholar, knowing especially that this library um, served for such a long time an area of Scotland that was relatively poorly uh, serviced by, by libraries. This was a place that, that people from the entire surrounding areas would come uh, flock to to visit. And we know this especially because, and this is, this is quite special for this library, there is a surviving 18th century uh, reader's register, a borrower's register, where you can see uh, which local people uh, borrowed books and what they borrowed and what they read. And it's a, uh, we really got an insight to see that the people of, of rural Persia um, loved, their, loved their religion and they loved their history. And those were, those were the subjects they would go to for, for inner Pefri. Are those, are those two of the key reasons um, Andrew, that we, you would say that uh, that libraries began to thrive and and be successful in those earliest days, religion and history is that what people were going for? Well, I wouldn't say that libraries were were were, were thriving in those days. I mean, what marks Inapefri out is the fact that, uh, as Arthur has quite rightly said, it, he has these wonderful uh, ledgers, so people have been able to study. Um, the history of, of reading, and, and that's what makes it so vanishingly unusual, but also uh, that it survives. Because throughout the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, people were struggling with how to create a library for community use. And a lot of people gave their books to the local town, um, people sometimes, particularly ministers, gave their own books to the parish church. Um, but virtually none of these libraries survive. In fact, on Saturday, we're going to one of the rare survivors in Malden and uh, uh, in Essex, where the donor, uh, Thomas Plume, was wise enough to create the building 
which the library should have. But most of these libraries were, were, were very swiftly lost because curating them became more than a burden than a joy. And throughout the tr history of trying to create a public library, which, which really didn't uh, succeed until Andrew Carnegie came along at the end of the 19th century, the library struggles from two things. One is competitors, subscription libraries, circulating libraries, other more commercial forms of library. And secondly, the desire of librarians to improve the taste of users in other words, not give them the, the books they necessarily wanted, but the books which are good for them. And that has been the besetting problem of, for, of public libraries, really right up to the 1970s. I want to uh, touch on I me. Mean, you mentioned um, Carnegie, and I want to mention uh, him because, you know, he had an impact around the world. I mean, I, when I'm in Canada, the community I live in is called Stratford, Ontario. It's not far from Toronto, a couple of hours drive. It's only about 30, 33,000 people, but it's one of the 2,000 communities in the world, roughly 2,000, that Carnegie, the richest man in the world at the time, decided to donate his much of his fortune to funding libraries, building libraries in some cases. Uh, in different parts of the world. So I, I want to get, because you, 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 you both describe very, very well this kind of boom and bust, mostly bust in the library world over the last uh, number of hundreds of years. Uh, what impact Carnegie had on trying to, trying to ensure that libraries could survive? Um, <laughs> Arthur, why don't you, okay. oh, sorry, go ahead, Andrew. Well, Carnegie succeeded largely because he brought the same tough-mindedness to libraries that he he, he brought to uh, his business um, dealings. He'd lived in a world where he could see libraries being uh, founded and then basically libraries lasting a generation and then the concerns of the next generation not being the same as the generation of builders. So he got round this problem by donating the money to build a building, but only on condition that the community uh, promised in, in perpetuity to provide a sum equivalent of a tenth of the, of the cost of construction to its upkeep. And he also urged upon them an um, architectural model which was austere and practical for small communities particularly, and I'm sure, Peter, you've seen some of these beautiful small buildings, mm -hmm. and no Doric columns, no balustrades, none of the features which showed the donor as a great man in the community, which had been the model up to this point. Do you want to add to and, that, and Arthur? Yeah, ab absolutely. And I think what, what's, um, you know, why was Carnegie so successful? He, he recognizes that for libraries to thrive, they do actually need to be used. And history has, has been filled throughout with libraries as, as symbols of knowledge or symbols of, of power. Or indeed, this idea of, you know, the great man of the community. But, um, you know, as soon, as soon as that memory fades, people, uh, people, people don't concern themselves anymore with that particular building or that collection because the connection they've had to that symbol has been lost. So Con what Carnegie showed is to say, look, I, I can give you the funds for these libraries, 
But, you know, you need to decide what books you want. What use are you as a community going to make with this collection? And, you know, that really, I think that really set people thinking about the way they want to, to organize their libraries. And if we look at the, in, in, in the, on this point in architecture that Andrew raises, one of the really interesting contrasts you have there is, um, is the, the 18th century uh, Baroque revitalization of great church and monastic libraries in Europe, especially in, in Germany and in Austria. Where um, if you if you were to buy today a book described as you know the hundred most beautiful libraries in the world, half of them would be filled with these these beautiful monastic temples, uh, St. Gallen, for example, in Switzerland, or Admont in Austria, where really these are libraries designed to be um, to be overwhelming, uh, to be mesmerizing. But there's no place to read books. And I think that is what Carnegie got, you know, that a library is there for 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 a practical use um, and also to to actually consult his books, to enjoy them. And that's that's what ensured his success. I want to spend a few minutes talking about where we are today with libraries generally. And that's what uh, in some ways your book is all about. And so I want to get a snapshot before I ask some specific questions about today's library world. And the the general question is: Are you know? It sounds it sounds like most of the time over the hundreds of years of histories of library, it has not been thriving. It has been you know just trying to stay alive. Where do you point to today? Where are libraries today? Are they just surviving? Are they thriving? Or is it you know less than surviving? Arthur. Well, I, if I'm if I may start, uh, Pete, to answer this one, um, I would say uh, libraries are thriving. Um, this is especially. I mean, if I just give you some some bare statistics, there is there's, there's still I think two point six million libraries around around the world, including four hundred thousand public libraries. And then we haven't even considered one of the most important form of library that we talk about in uh, in our in our story, and that is personal collections and private collections. And there's never been more opportunity than today for people to to amass collections of books. And we find them e- everywhere these days. Um, it's school libraries, university libraries are are bigger bigger and and better than ever. Um, you know, we see the, the amount um, the, the amount of libraries you will find uh, on the street. Uh, in in old in old post boxes that people will be be using for their community where people can access books, I would say in that general picture, uh, there are more libraries than ever. But the key distinction is is that we need to recognise that, that at the same time the fate of most libraries and indeed of of these personal collections is that they will be dispersed. They will not last forever. And I think we have as a society a fixation on this idea that libraries should be there for perpetuity. That they represent something of of, uh, of human knowledge that they should always remain. Whereas we we see a, a world where libraries thrive, but they do also um, they disperse and are reconstructed again by different people, all depending on their needs, on their tastes in books, and that is something that as a society we have to recognize. Andrew, uh, you're co-authors of this book with Arthur, but does that mean you you agree on key points like that one? Yes, I think um, our our whole um, purpose in this book is to demonstrate that the uh, so-called crisis of the library is is not a crisis of the present, um, but a normal process uh, of um, uh, construction, of gathering, of dissolution and dispersal and reconstruction. 
Um, we were asked by uh, a leading Scottish paper to take part in their campaign uh, to save the public library in Scotland. So I think that there is a crisis, but it's a very specific crisis, and it's a crisis of the branch library in the UK. In many parts of the UK, the town's central library um, has been extremely sensitively redesigned and reconstructed to meet the modern needs of its users. Uh, there's more noise, there's more coffee shops, there's more uh, association space. And it's interesting that when we've talked to people who are campaigning to keep these branch libraries open, they often refer to these ancillary um, features, a place for people to use computers, uh, to come and gather for meetings for various various groups of, uh, of the community. And they've seldom mentioned books. And the truth is these branch libraries are increasingly ill um, served for people who want to, to, to read books because the people who are in these smaller communities want the same range of books available to them than they, they would get if they were going to the main library. Um, and so that's the difficulty that branches are, are facing in a position where certainly in the UK, um, funds are very tight and the people who campaign for the keeping these branches open seldom suggests what other services uh, what, what other services should be sacrificed in order to maintain the branch library network on the other hand if you go to france they have an extraordinarily flourishing library culture based around a completely complete redesign of their municipal libraries which were moribund up until the 1970s as city media techs with all sorts of community interests um, served, but also superb collections of books. So it can be done. It's just a say, case of social priorities. Okay, here's, here's a question about today. Uh, and let me frame it this way, and maybe Arthur, you can take a run at this one. Um, we've been confronted in this country that much of the popular literature in schools and textbooks and movies, that the history we've been learning has come from one perspective, more or less, and that most notably, black and indigenous versions of history have been underrepresented. When it comes to libraries, where quite literally, they hold history in them, they hold knowledge in them, how, how have they evolved, or have they evolved? to include more than one main perspective of history, especially when so many other diverse groups are much more oral-based than text? How do libraries make sure they're living up to their promise of knowledge and information for all people? Now, I know there's a lot in there. It's kind of a loaded question, um, and different libraries operate differently, I'm sure. But in general, is that an issue for libraries too, that they are evolving or are they not? Well, it's a, it's a very good question. And I would say the key thing to recognize here is, is indeed this promise you speak of, you know, that libraries are there for everyone and that they should offer uh, a, a diverse literature, literature of, of, of various genres and sorts, not only instructive or, or educational, but also recreational. That is in a way a very recent development in the history of libraries. Um, and, and, and throughout history, libraries have often contained one sort of book. 
uh, often uh, from one perspective of, uh, of, of political allegiance or indeed a confessional allegiance. And books that belong to a different creed were often um, not, um, you know, they weren't included in, in those libraries. Sometimes they were, but uh, there's one particularly uh, hilarious case of the um, uh, of the, the, the Swedish Empire in, this, in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, Sweden, uh, Lutheran, uh, Lutheran Protestant country, um, but also uh, a great empire that when it uh, was rampaging through Germany and Poland, um, whenever they encountered a Catholic town, they would seize its entire library and transport all the Catholic books back to Sweden. Not because they wanted uh, the population of Sweden to be reading Catholic books, but because these were books that uh, Swedish ministers would want to be reading so they could de defend Protestantism. And indeed, in the great university library at Uppsala, uh, they kept all these books, but they kept them on a separate floor of the library that was only accessible through a special door, uh, the key to which was in the hands of the of the librarian only so there is this sense to which that that libraries depending on what we what what society has deemed to be their purpose um they have they've collected books specifically for that need and so this idea that that libraries should have books for everyone and should tell the history of of everyone and indeed also as you say of cultures that have uh, up until more modern times um, have a an, an oral literate culture rather than a textual written culture. Um, that is a very a new, new development, and mm. from what we can see, libraries are certainly uh, embracing that and are often indeed at the forefront of this development rather than at the rear. <laughs> Andrew, I've uh, yeah, I, I know you want to say something on that point. Uh, go ahead, and then I've got another question for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would do, endorse that. And I think Arthur putting it in a historical perspective also helps guard one of the um, uh, great dangers of these debates today. And that's what I would um, uh, describe as the arrogance of the present, the sense that we have got um, uh, a unique perspective on how society should be run and that somehow we have reached a perfection now against which we should all judge all of history. Uh, and obviously, in 50 years' time, people look back at, at us and say, wow, they really didn't get it at all. Um, the other point I would make is that uh, librarians are extremely sensitive uh, to these issues because, in Britain at least, libraries are a local responsibility rather than a national responsibility. So they're ideally placed uh, to be responsive to the needs of their particular community, which varies very much depending on whether you're in Dingwall or central Birmingham. And I think that's also got to be remembered that the librarians um, in central Birmingham have been dealing with these issues now for 50 years long before they came, became hot-button issues in national politics. I love your term, the arrogance of the present. Um, or the, the presence. And I, 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 I've got to imagine that you have some really interesting debates with some of your younger students in your classes when you try that line out on them. Uh, so, so good luck with that. And uh, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how that works out for you. Um, we're, we're gobbling up time uh, quite quickly. And, and so I want to do uh, 
what we call over here on the uh, on the on the other side of the pond we call it uh you know short snappers so i you know i'll give you a question and 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 if we can try and do the condensed uh, uh version of the answer um arthur what's digitizing doing to libraries um, digitizing is making uh, many, many more uh, books available to 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 a broader section of of the population. Um, it's also uh, and ensuring that there's fewer printed books often in libraries. And to a certain extent, there is a real uh, competition uh, between the two, which um, Andrew and I haven't taken the long perspective of history uh, view again as a little bit of a danger. Because um, a digitization uh, doesn't mean uh, we should get get rid of uh, printed books. Uh, uh, Andrew, will there always be a need for bricks and mortar libraries or will they become more like Amazon where you can get what you want through the internet? There will always be um, a case for bricks and mortar libraries, uh, not um, least because a library as a physical um, building is where you go to be surprised, just like you do in a bookshop. And bookshops and libraries have more in, in common than people realize and indeed have often worked very closely together. Uh, I often go into a library or into a bookshop and come across a book I've never heard of and never imagined existed. And this browsing is one of the features I think that the digital revolution has really struggled and thus far failed to recreate. So even if um, and there's a great danger, as we've discovered during the, the, the pandemic, that if society just becomes atomized into people remaining forever in their homes and servicing all their needs digitally, um, then it, that's an impoverishment of society and libraries can play against that. You agree with that, Arthur? Absolutely. What uh, uh, 100%. Um, I mean, I, I think we're, we, we think very much... Uh, um, along along the same same lines there, and again, you know, we've been we've been informed by the fact that you know previously there were new technologies that came along too, like like microfilm or microfiche that library some libraries embraced as this sort of whole scale replacement for all the technologies that um, have been around for a long time. I mean, we've had the codex uh, uh, for pretty much two millennia now, and it's still going strong. So I say, yeah. why replace it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let, let oh, me yeah, assure yeah. you, Peter, yeah. let, yeah. Me, let me assure you, Peter, that uh, our book, 90% uh, of the copies that sell will be print. Right. Yeah, I know that feeling. Uh, you know, mm. I, I, I'm a, uh, you know, a struggling uh, author myself these days. Uh, and, you know, my uh, fame, if you want, in this in in Canada is based on my voice because I was, you know, I, I was a journalist of of some repute in in the country for about fifty years, and my voice is very well recognized. So the assumption on the publisher would be, we'll be able to sell a lot of books as audio books if yeah. you do do that. So you know, I I agreed to you know do an audio copy, but it's there. It is totally blown away. By the print copies of the books yeah. you know yeah. Uh, yeah. so it's interesting because i think when they started doing audio books the assumption was and i'm not i'm not knocking audio books there's a there's a mm. uh, you know a lot of people depend on them especially when they're driving in their car etc uh but um i think everybody or a lot of people assumed because of the age we're living in that they were going to mean the end eventually of of the 
the print copy of a book and mm-hmm. home libraries. Uh, yeah. That hasn't happened. There's nothing like the feel of a book, right? Yeah. Bet, betting on the future in the technology of information is a great way to lose money. <laughs> that must be another good one for an argument in your class. <laughs> um, you, um, I'll throw this one at Andrew as well, because you brought this issue up of being surprised, the pleasure of being surprised in the library by finding something you hadn't thought of. Give me some other surprise. What, what would we find surprising about libraries that we haven't discussed here today or we generally don't think about? What would be something surprising about libraries? Well, I'm going to hand over to Arthur because he's, he's got a good idea. But I'll just say before I do, <laughs> one thing that was really striking uh, when we went around libraries to discuss with librarians uh, their world is the disconnect between the ambitions of the senior management um, who always want a new building, who always want to impress the mayor, who always want to leave a legacy, and the solid commitment of the branch librarians who actually see the local people who come in and know that they're actually quite conservative in their choices, but that the books they give them mean an awful lot in their life. And that's going to be a continuing tension in the library movement. Arthur? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to load the tone here slightly, perhaps, after that, uh, that wonderful comment, Andrew. But one thing that, that really surprised uh, to us, you know, when, when we were speaking to uh, library staff of, of the present day, one of the things that always came up is how uh, the librarians uh, viewed their libraries as a, as a place where people could, you know, find a temporary refuge. They could, they could come there, they can uh, do their taxes, they can use the internet. Most of the often, it's just about warming up. Uh, which, of course, I can imagine. Uh, I haven't been to many Canadian libraries, but I imagine that that's the case in, in Canada too. But actually, for most of the history of, of libraries, libraries have been terribly cold places, precisely from the fact that, that fire and heating uh, are pretty, pretty dodgy things to have around the library. And indeed, uh, um, um, we know of, of, of several scholars in the 17th century who most likely died as a result of the pneumonia. They, um, they developed while working in the Bodleian Library in Oxford which had yeah. one of the strictest uh, policies against kindling a flame, as readers who will uh, register at the Bodleian Library today still have to uh, vow as they get their readers card. <laughs> now, it's not a library, uh, but it is a famous bookstore, and I'm sure that you've both been in it at one time or another, and that's uh, Leakey's in Inverness, which is a wonderful bookstore you know tiered up on a number of floors but it too is freezing cold although they have this huge you know almost open fire pit in the middle <laughs> of, of uh, leakies to try and give some warmth. so when you find a book you find people down there's kind of huddled around the furnace <laughs> trying to stay warm um let me close where where we started and and that's on uh inner peppery uh I was surprised when you outlined it, Arthur, that there are still some books there from the original library. Not only that, you can go up and you know take it off the shelf and read it. Can you take it off the shelf and take it home? Not anymore, sadly. Uh, it did. It did used to be the case at Inner Peffrey, which again was another an, another reason for its success. 
because this is another thing where which we uh, consider to be totally common that you go to a library and you're able to borrow some books and take them home read at your pleasure but actually the sort of free borrowing rights are a relatively modern development in in library history um so the fact that you you can't uh, uh, do it any anymore than a pefri i certainly can understand they have some very very valuable valuable books uh, in, incredibly rare items, and indeed books um, you will not find in any other library. So it's a really, really uh, special place. So I would urge all your listeners, if they get the chance to go to Scotland, certainly stop by in a Pefri. Right. Um, Arthur, Andrew, this has been a treat, a real pleasure to talk to both of you. Wish you uh, uh, best of luck on, on your book, and uh, I know it'll be of interest to many Canadians, and that's why there's a North American edition of it coming out in a very short time. So thank you both very much. Well, there you go. Two uh, wonderful professors from St. Andrew's University in uh, Scotland, Andrew Pedigree and Arthur Dervedevin. Their book, once again, The Library of Fragile History, and it's out now in North America, just uh, in the last uh, 24 hours. Um, so you can uh, grab your copy at wherever you, uh, you get books. You may have to order it with them, or it may be there on the shelf. So uh, if you're interested, and, uh, you know, you've got to admit, when you first heard that I was going to do a show just on libraries, you probably went, really? Libraries? For a whole show? Now, I know some of you are fascinated by that topic and had no problem listening to a whole show, but others perhaps had to get interested. And those two guys tell an interesting story about a, uh, a, a part of our lives that we're lucky to have and would be very unlucky to lose. Anyway, enough on that. Um, tomorrow, good talk. Chantal Bear, Montreal, Bruce Anderson in Ottawa. Looking forward to see what they have to say on any number of different topics. In the meantime, I'm Peter Mansbridge. This has been The Bridge. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.